Uh, if you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. And uh, while you guys have your Bibles in hand or in, and or are getting one or opening up your app, uh, open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, today is actually the last uh, message in a series that we've been in called Renovation of the Heart. We've been looking at what it really looks like to follow Jesus and how to grow as followers of Jesus. In particular, looking at the variety of practices that Jesus, not only himself, had done, but also his followers in scripture had done. And history, you know, many, many thousands of years of history prior to Jesus had done, as well as disciples of Jesus over the past 2,000 years have done. Things like fasting and praying and gathering together and worshiping and so on. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So today's going to be the last sermon of that. And it's kind of more of a closing thoughts and ideas and concepts and accumulation of ideas over this past several, like, month and a half, two months that we've been looking at this. Um, Next week, you don't want to miss, I'll talk a little bit about this maybe towards the end, or maybe I'll just give you a tell you about right now. But I have a good friend of mine. His name is George Navarez. He actually lives down in Oceano. He's going to be teaching next Sunday. I'll be here, but don't don't miss it. He's such an amazingly gifted teacher and communicator. You do not want to miss hearing George Navarez communicate, bring the word of God to you guys. It's going to be an awesome um, this time next Sunday. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read the passage of scripture. In fact, I'm going to have you guys stand again. Hopefully that's cool with you guys. So I'll stand. I'll read the passage. And then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work looking at the subject matter today. The message is actually called Becoming New People. We'll talk about that more in just a second, and it will make sense as to why it's called that as we get into this. But what we want to do really focus on now is reading the passage, getting our hearts in tune with it, and then beginning to pray into it and ask God what he wants to speak to us through it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says this. Do you not know that in a race all runners run? But only one receives the prize. If you're a millennial, you're like, wait, I thought we all got the prize. (laughs) Nope. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who's beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And this is God's word. Uh, God, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts to hear and learn and grow and ask bigger questions as to how this scripture is to speak to us today, living in 2019, and how we can grow as followers of Jesus. God, that's ultimately what we want. We don't want just simply a nominal relationship to you and all that you're doing in this world. We don't want to just simply be people that come near by way of coming to church on Sunday or doing certain religious activities and duties, and yet at the end of the day, we are not in. We're not part of what you're up to. So God, remove us from the sideline, remove us from observation places, remove us from just simply being in the outskirts and bring us, God, into the very center of what you're up to. Let the gospel transform and reshape and reorient the sum total of who we are. So we commit this morning in your hands, and we ask for a posture of humility to learn and grow from the things that you want to teach us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So we launched a series basically with a question, and the question went something like this. Um, Have you ever been troubled by the gap between what you profess and how you act? What you know about God and what you practice. That was the question that basically launched this entire series 
uh, two months ago when we jumped into this. And the big idea is that, yes, this is definitely, for many of us, this is the issue that we face. We have a profession, which means many of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you make a claim to have some degree of association with Jesus, and yet there's oftentimes these gaps that we have to confront in our lives between what we say we believe and what we actually do. And this is kind of an interesting thing because on one hand, it's very easy to identify this in other people, right? We call it hypocrisy. We're pretty, pretty quick to judge and criticize other people that have these big glaring gaps. But yet oftentimes we're a little bit more reticent and slower to identify and or press into and uh, have God change these things in our lives. Because for the most part, again, we, we see what we want to see a lot of times. We tend to think that we are far more advanced or far more mature or far more... Uh, further along the journey than what we really are. There's no shame about accepting or recognizing maybe I'm just, maybe I am uh, slower. Maybe I am just kind of an infant in the faith. And that's okay. There's a, there's a place for that. Uh, but the big idea is that we want to recognize, we want to close that gap. We want to begin to at least identify that the gap exists and then begin to look to how God wants to reshape us so that that gap kind of becomes smaller. Like there's not this big glaring like space between what we say about God and what we actually live in terms with regard to God. So one of the things that I think would define most followers of Jesus, that's pretty much typically true of, I would say, all people that profess faith in Christ, is that number one, they find Jesus utterly compelling. It's part of probably why you're here, to some degree, more or less, is that you are compelled by Jesus you see him as your savior, you love him, you recognize what he's done for you. If for some reason that's not where your heart's at, maybe you've grown cold, maybe you've just kind of uh, fallen into some degree of a religious activity or a duty, uh, my hope would be that uh, your heart would come back to life. You would see the beauty of Jesus and that you would begin to remind yourself. Because at the end of the day, that's what heaven, that's what the, where the future is all going, is everything will be around a throne, and on that throne is Jesus. And he is absolutely, utterly compelling uh, in his description that we see of him throughout Scripture. And the point that I'd make is that, first of all, Christians find Jesus utterly compelling. Secondly, we want to change and grow as humans, to ultimately become like him. And I think, again, there might be a variety of ways in which we approach this, but I think generally this is true for all of us. Because we begin to recognize, at least to some degree, small, minor gaps in us, uh, we, again, like I said, we see the big gaps in other people, but we begin to realize, like, I, I want to change. I want to grow. I want to grow into becoming one that looks more and more like Jesus in my life, throughout my life, in the lives of other people. And this, again, that's what, for the most part, what brings us together is that Jesus is utterly compelling to, we really want to grow. We want to become like him because we recognize that there is a need for change. Now, one of the things I think for many of us, we are unprepared for as followers of Jesus is that this process is long and extremely difficult. It's long and extremely difficult. Uh, entering into, becoming quote-unquote saved, uh, having Jesus become your savior, that's, that's relatively easy. In fact, it's so easy that scripture actually says it's as near even uh, on your lips. It's, it's a profession. It's a recognition. Jesus, your Lord, I trust you. I love you. I turn to you. God saves you. He washes you. He cleanses you. He infuses you with what he describes as the Holy Spirit. The holy, the holy breath of God comes and takes up residence within you. But the long process that we would call be walking as a Christian, that takes a lifetime. 
Um, it doesn't happen overnight. It comes as a result of saying yes to God, partnering with God. It's practice. It takes hard work. It takes discipline. More on that in just a moment, like the passage that we had just read. And on top of that, on top of that, there's at least four things I think we need to really take into consideration. Number one is that part of following Jesus involves this long, difficult process of, first of all, unlearning ingrained inherited ways. And what I mean by that, all of us, every one of us, I don't care who you are, we come to God bringing baggage. That's okay. So this whole idea, like, I got a lot of baggage, so, so does everybody. We all have baggage. But we accumulate that baggage from a variety of ways. We inherit that baggage from our family of origin. We inherit that baggage from the last church that you went to that was a cult. We inherit that baggage from all sorts of variety of ways. Just spending hours and hours and hours watching like Christian television. You just got a truckload of baggage. We, we find all sorts of means of variety by which we pick up baggage. And what that baggage does is it gives us a God narrative that's different than the narrative of the scripture. So we might come to God and we think God is this angry, very, very frustrated, upset, aggravated landlord, and I'm squatting on his property. That's how God sees me. Rather than seeing God as a loving father. That's a God narrative you have. And if that is your God narrative, that's the way that you think of God, that will shape how you live. It's called, another way, it's baggage that we inherit. But part of the process of becoming a follower of Jesus is unlearning that. Do you follow? It's unlearning that. Um, also working through brokenness and shame and the wounds that we carry. Uh, that's where I would describe it. It's unlearning these ingrained inherited ways. Secondly, it involves identifying and challenging the prevailing cultural influences. You, hopefully you, all of us are aware that culture at large around us, culture at large around us is not innate. It's not just sort of apathetic. It's, I like to think of culture at large and culture at large for the most part is promoted by things like the media, by things like movies, rock stars. You get the idea. Like, like that's, that's the, there's a system. If you, if you want to put it into a religious language, it is a highly, highly evangelistic system, religious order that is not just casually telling you, hey, if you want to like think this way, it actually is consistently, constantly evangelizing you to live according to a certain way. And here's why. Society at large has a vision of what we would call the good life. It would say, live this way, act this way, think this way towards everybody. However, then you will prosper, you will live, you will thrive, you will survive within this world that we, in large which we live. And that gets carried over and pervade through the movies, through the media, through the music that we are constantly imbibing. And the fact of the matter is, is are, have you been able to identify the cultural influences? Again, it's, it's not casual. It's constantly shoving itself into your life. So we had a practice, for example, when my kids were young and we first started like watching movies and together. And I kind of made this point that I said, um, I, I grew up in a little bit of a Christian tradition that tried to kind of remove itself as much as it could from anything that was quote unquote ungodly. And again, I think there's maybe some merit to that. But the fact of the matter is, is it's completely impossible to completely remove yourself from everything that's ungodly. So the question is, is how, what would be a better way to approach ungodliness and destruction and ruin and bad narratives and bad God narratives within our culture at large? I, I would say it's is better to just learn how to have a really good understanding of the gospel, have these as a lens by which I see everything, and then that would allow me to be able to watch shows or movies or whatever it is, engage with it, be able to identify, well, that's an influence that's not Jesus, that 
idea or that ideology is going to take me far from God. And that promises life and immediate life. In other words, again, think about the sex ethic that we live with in our culture. Just hook up, have sex. You don't even have to like the person. It's okay. You're just two physical beings coming together for a moment. It's all cool. But the fact of the matter is, it's not all cool the next day when you wake up and you feel crappy. You feel shameful. You look at your life and you're like, did I just really do that? Oh my gosh, I just showed them, gave them my body, and now I feel horrible about that the next day. So what I'm saying is that we live in a culture that's constantly saying, imbibe this, live according to this, follow this idea, this ideology. But what I'm suggesting is that as a follower of Jesus, we have to learn how to identify these things. So when my kids were young, We'd watch like movies, and I remember with a very, I think maybe this might have been like my first experimental like moment with my kids. I think it was like Lion King, which, you know, again, it's pretty innocuous for the most part, but there is a narrative there that's, that's not Jesus. It's, it's a pantheistic narrative, right? If you have no idea what that is, that's okay. But the idea is like God is everywhere, He's everywhere. And what I wanted my daughters to just know is that, like, like yes, there's a sense in which God is everywhere, but God is not a tree, and God is not the sun. God made the sun. He's beyond the sun. And so we would pause the movie, and they would laugh about this. In fact, they were here for service, and they both laughed and chuckled. But the point of the matter is, is I was trying to train them. I was trying to introduce uh, liturgies in our household for how to navigate with this cultural environment that is constantly trying to force itself upon us. So we would walk through it. We'd talk about it. I'm like, hey, it's a great storyline here, but here's a couple things I want you to just be aware of, that this is different than what God says in his word. So again, the idea is, do you identify? Have you been able to identify? Do you know what messages? The shows that you're constantly just binge-watching on Netflix are trying to say to you, what picture of the good life is it promoting? Have you imbibed it mindlessly, or are you able to at least... Watch it and be aware, ah, that's what it's communicating to me. But that's not the good life according to scripture. And that ideology or that narrative, if I follow it to its fullest end, will leave me broken and ruined because that's not the gospel. So that's the third thing, or the second thing. So the third thing is resisting the evil one. So following Jesus involves this long, difficult path of also resisting the evil one because scripture tells us. Now again, in our modern materialistic age, this idea of some form of unseen realm or you know, intangible force that is exercising influence upon the world around us seems utterly ridiculous. I get it. It's fine. But, again, this is where we're kind of faced with, okay, whose word will we take? Modern-day materialists or, or Jesus? Because Jesus actually wrestled with these creatures and beings, and he said, look, it, it's a real force. And so the point that I would make is that there are influences that come from what the Bible describes as an unseen realm that is constantly trying to exercise influence over us and the decisions we make and how we live and how we think about other people and how we act towards other people and how we respond in dire circumstances and so on and so forth and how we respond to temptation and all these types of things constantly influencing us. And then the final thing is this path, this journey of discipleship that we'll call it, also involves embracing brand new practices and or habits. And these practices and or habits are ultimately ones which help us to align ourselves with the way of Jesus. That's what we would call spiritual practices or habits of grace or however you would want to describe these. These are practices that basically Jesus did, his disciples did, that scripture writes about, that we are invited to do. And they're not to just simply be mindlessly done, but they're to be done in order to shape us into becoming different types of people. 
the author James K. Smith has this uh, quote that he basically describes, and I'll read it. He says something along the lines uh, in the form of a question. He says, what are the practices you are doing, doing to you? We all have practices. There's every one of us. We do things daily. There's certain, I mean, again, many of the practices that we're doing, like you brush your teeth twice a day. That's giving you nice dental hygiene. That's wonderful. Great. That's, that has, that's kind of a smaller idea. But there are other practices that we just oftentimes do by way of quote-unquote habit. But the question is, what are those practices that you're doing, doing to you? So if you have a practice, you wake up at 3 in the morning and you just read for an hour the headlines of the news, if that is your practice, it's very likely that that practice is actually embedding like anxiety into your very soul. That's maybe one of the reasons why you can't sleep and why you wake up absolutely stressed out and you're freaking out and your world is like constant doomsday because that practice at that time or in the circumstance of your life is actually creating a certain response in you. And so what are the practices that you do doing to you? But the invitation of a follower of Jesus is to adopt new practices. And that's what we've been looking at over the past several weeks. So I want to give you this little paradigm, this picture, this slide. Uh, we'll come back to this in just a second here. Uh, of this par- There we go, this thing. Um, this, what I would describe as unintentional spiritual formation versus intentional spiritual formation. And what I want to suggest to you is that every single one of you in this room right now, you are on a pathway of being spiritually formed. Every one of you. Now, some of you might be like, I don't, I'm not doing anything. That's exactly right. It's, it's called unintentional spiritual formation. You are being formed. You're being shaped and by those three areas, by your, uh, your, what you inherited, the ideas, your family of origin. You are being shaped by culture at large around you. You are being shaped by unseen influences in this world and beyond us that are shaping and making us. And this is the idea here, the stories we believe, the daily habits we practice, the relationships that we find, all of this is taking place within a zone. We call it a zone, our culture, our environment. But what we are invited into is what I would describe as intentional spiritual formation, meaning that we want to be intentional about what it looks like to truly be followers of Jesus. And this takes place by scripture and teaching because that actually reshapes the stories we believe from being these false God narratives to becoming the gospel. Uh, we engage in practices that might look different than practices that we had been engaged in before or might take the old practices that we had done and reshape them, tweak them in just such a way that they become practices that help align our hearts with the heart of God. We would call those spiritual practices. Um, and then the community that we're a part of, uh, meaning moving from isolation, moving from no form of accountability, no relationship, nobody that we are known by or nobody that we actually know into a place what Scripture describes as a family, where we live together, we love each other, we, we, are, we care for one another. And all of this is done within the context of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is everywhere. He's moving, working, even in our hearts right now. This is the context. So what I want to do is I want to look at next the slide, some of the spiritual practices that we have looked at, just kind of get everybody on the same page as to what we have been talking about. And again, if uh, you missed any of the messages, I'd highly recommend going online, calvaryslow.com, downloading the messages, listening to them, because this will give you some information as to about what each of these are. Uh, but first of all, I want you to notice that every single one of these things are things that Jesus himself had done, um, his followers had done in the New Testament, and for 2,000 years of history, these are things that Jesus' people have done for 2,000 years of history. 
Um, and again, you might look at your, your life right now, your present circumstances, and be like, I might do like one or two of them. Um, and again, the invitation is not to say create busy work for your life and just get going on it. That's not, that's not helpful because you can do these types of things and not really be formed, not really be reshaped and reformed. Um, so the idea is how we do these things, how we engage with them. So we looked at like assimilating scripture, which could be reading, studying, meditating, memorizing. Uh, next one we looked at was praying. This is the idea, the practice of silence and solitude, getting away to be with Jesus, to spend time with God, to give our hearts over to him. Um, thirdly, community, the, the practice of actually coming together like this. Uh, good job, by the way. This is actually, this can be a spiritual practice or it could just be a routine, like form of boredom for you. Um, or, you know, just like anguishing pain, like, oh my gosh, I go to church again. Like, like that's, like, the invitation for you is to maybe tweak that a little bit so that you, you aren't bringing, like, constant dread and pain to your existence, but to maybe tweak it in such a way it's like, I'm actually practicing community. This could be a good thing. Like, Jesus may want to shape me, and this practice is reshaping me into a follower of Jesus. Uh, worship, fasting, generosity, simplicity. Sabbath, and last week we looked at the, the practice of what we just described as peacemaking, which involves this process of forgiveness and or reconciliation. And again, like I said, all of these things are practices that Jesus did regularly. And he invites his followers to imbibe these, to engage with these, to make them practices of our lives. Because again, like I said, the practices that we practice, the things that we do, they shape us. They train us to become something, a type of person that's either becoming like Jesus, engaged with his mission in this world, or becoming something else. Again, nobody approaches this world from a blank slate. You know, I, I know a lot of modern society, especially um, with, in terms of an elevation of human beings, we tend to think like, I'm a free thinker. I do everything on my own. Nobody influences me. Nobody informs me. I'm a total 100% free spirit, and that's how I operate. Fact of the matter is, that's a pipe dream. It's absolutely untrue because every one of us, we look at the world through our family of origin, through the things that we inherited, through the culture that's constantly, again, evangelizing us and shaping us through their, litur their liturgies and unseen realm, these unseen forces. So every one of us, has, we don't approach the world from a blank slate. That's all I want you to understand. But all of us are invited to follow Jesus, to take up new practices, new liturgies, if you want to think of it that way, and to begin to engage the world that Jesus invites us into. So with that being said, I want to take a look at the passage that we had read. I'll make some observations about that, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. So what does this passage that we had read inform us or teach us about the subject of really becoming new people? So let's first of all take a look at number one. Number one, discipleship is like athletics. So those of you that are really into athletic sports, this passage is just for you. So it's kind of funny, ironic, because I'm not a huge like athletic type of a guy. I like surfing, like that's my sport. And I don't even know if that qualifies as athletic type stuff. But the point of the matter is, according to Paul, walking with Jesus, living, in the, living as a disciple, following Jesus, it's like, it's like an actual athlete. So here's what he says. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Again, he uses an analogy of athletics. Here's a couple of the passages to consider. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says this. 
I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish the race and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. So Paul is writing to, in this context, or speaking with a handful of other pastors and leaders over the churches that he had planted in a particular city called Ephesus. He's about to leave. Paul had spent a fairly lengthy amount of time there, but he knew his time was coming to an end. And Paul was actually sitting down with him. He was like, look, I know that my time with you, the assignment that I received from God, uh, I've done with all my full heart. And my race is almost finished. So he uses the analogy, the language of being like an athlete. Paul's like, I worked out hard. I did everything that was assigned to me to do. And I love this image. Because Paul's recognizing that everything that I did with you guys, it was like I was, I was on an assignment from Jesus for you, and I've, I've done it with the best of my ability. And I, I, I like this picture because I mentioned this last week that I think all of us, we have these assignments that God's, God's given us. There's these general assignments that are kind of universal for everybody that calls himself a follower of Jesus, assignments of like praying and uh, living our lives in such a way that makes much of Jesus. We call that maybe evangelize and communicate, uh, communicating the gospel. But then there's these uh, specific assignments that God gives us that are unique to who you are and your sphere of influence and the people that are around you in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workspace, in your dorm room, wherever it is. Um, and if that language or that idea is a little bit foreign to you, or maybe you're asking yourself, I have no idea what my assignment is. I thought my assignment was just to get homework done or just make some money to pay my bills and, or whatever the case is and work really hard, come home, watch, binge, watch Netflix for the next three hours and then go to sleep and then put on repeat again. If, maybe that's all that you thought your assignment was. But I would suggest to you, if that language is a little bit confusing or maybe you are thinking, I don't really know exactly what that is. There's not a lot of clarity there. Uh, I would invite you to just pray and ask God, God, what is it that you have for me? What more in my life are you calling me to? How do you want to use me to make much of the name of Jesus? How do you want to use me to love my neighbor, to love you in the midst of loving my neighbor? Um, think about what are those assignments. And then, like Paul, like, I, I want to be able at some point of my life look back and say, I did everything. I've finished this race. I'm coming close to the end of this race, and I've done everything with the greatest ability and power and strength that I, I was given by way of this assignment. And then Paul goes on to say in Galatians, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith through love. And then he goes on to say, But you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Again, a little bit of a, an athletic analogy, where he says, Look, uh, if you're familiar with the story of the Galatian church, is that these are people that started out really strong, loving Jesus, accepting what we would call as the gospel by grace. They recognize this is a gift, this good news, God welcomes us, invites us to live according to his life. But somewhere along the line, uh, these people began to drift. They drifted into what we might call legalism. And uh, that's just a big fancy theological word that basically means um, trying to relate to God or trying to be accepted by God or accepting other people based upon a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, things that we would do, things that would qualify you to kind of rise to the standard where I, now I can hang with you because you've done X, Y, and Z. And what Paul is saying, dude, you guys have drifted. Like, what, what's hindered you from this race? You started out so strong, but somewhere along the line, you've drifted. So, again, this is an implication that, that we can all drift. All of us are prone to this. Like, there's no way of fully avoiding this. I mean, there's ways in which we can curb it, we can resist it, we can acknowledge it. Uh, again, it's always this process of taking into consideration my family of origin, 
the wounds, the baggage, the hurt, the pain that I carry, the God narratives that are kind of messed up, or the influences of the culture around us that is constantly trying to feed, its, feed, its, feed me with itself, its toxic ideas, or the unseen realm that's constantly trying to influence me by way of getting to my headspace, my thoughts, my ideas. It's one of the reasons why Paul says I put on the helmet of salvation. The big idea is that my mind oftentimes is this battlefield of false narratives. How are we doing? It's true. And the invitation all the time is to come back to realign ourselves with Jesus, the community of Jesus' people, and these practices that Jesus and his followers did. And so Paul says, man, you guys are running so well, and then you drifted. And then lastly, he says, uh, next slide. There you go. Thank you. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And then he uses an athletic analogy. He shifts from being a runner to actually... MMA, this is, this is cool, like, I like this. So he says, fight the good fight of faith. The big idea here is like, look, following Jesus is like a battle. We're in a battleground. And a battleground is for keeps. There's an enemy that has waged war against us. And again, this is where I would say that if we are not actively fighting or resisting, what happens is we get pushed down, we get pushed away, our minds uh, become overtaken by these influences, by those three things that I said. And what Paul says, the idea of following Jesus involves agonizing. That's basically the word that he uses here. Fight the good fight. The idea of agonizing, fighting, resisting. It's active. It's not passive. And again, it's in this athletic term of what it looks like to be a disciple. So number one, again, discipleship is like athletics. Number two, we see that discipleship involves hard work. Discipleship involves Hard work. Again, this is implied very clearly in verse 25, or I should say stated clearly. It says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So again, to, to self-control involves you doing something. So becoming a follower of Jesus or getting saved totally 100% involves Jesus rescuing you. Walking as a disciple involves you making decisions, trusting Jesus, Doing something about the anxiety, doing something about the rage, the anger, not just letting it burn in you, the passions, the lusts, all right? It's doing something about that, taking them to Jesus, taking them to your community, bringing them to people that you trust, mentors, godly people, that you can say, hey, pray for me because I feel like I'm being overtaken by these things. And it involves hard work. That's what discipleship is. Listen to the next slide, great quote from Dallas Willard. He says in his book called The Great Omission, he says, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. That line alone is literally worth the entire book, all right? Uh, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. The grace that saves us, you, you didn't earn it. You cannot earn it. In fact, it would be an insult to somehow stand before God and be like, God, I did great. Can I earn salvation? God would be like, are you kidding me? You think it's that cheap? It's extremely costly, but I'm going to give it to you. Of course you can't earn it. But following Jesus involves incredible amount of effort. It involves this process, like I said, that's challenging. It's difficult. It's agonizing. Uh, it's, it's hard work, if you want to put it that way. It goes on to say, effort is an action. Grace, as you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone, but offers strength in the day-to-day -day action of following Jesus. So grace... We use that word a lot, especially in modern-day evangelicalism. 
And uh, it's a very, very broad word. It just simply means gift. Grace involves salvation. God gives you salvation. But grace also involves this day-to-day empowerment or energy or strength from the Holy Spirit to live as a follower of Jesus. It's all a gift. Next slide. Go to the third thing. Is that discipleship involves a cost and a reward. You catch that in the passage? Listen to it again. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in a perishable one. So what Paul is no doubt thinking about as he writes this, he's in this city called Corinth, uh, which is, as you know, geographically, I imagine, is what's called an isthmus. But this actually became an isthmian, it's kind of a hard word to say, games, which was basically the precursor to what would be known as the Athenian games, right? Or known as the modern-day Olympics. Uh, These were games that would happen every single year or every single few years, whatever the case would be. People would come in from all around the known world, and they would show off their, you know, powerful talents and expertise. They've been training for many, many years, working hard. Now they come and they show off. They run, they wrestle, all these things that would happen. So Paul basically goes on to say that, look, when they win, they get this crown, this wreath that, you know, it's it's already dead. And at some point it's going to decay and it will just, you know, decompose. But he says, we who follow Jesus, we follow Jesus knowing that we will be given an imperishable crown one of these days. This reward, this idea that we will be elevated and honored and raised to a degree that is mind-blowing. That's the whole point that Paul is making. So yes, discipleship does involve this cost. Does it cost me anything to follow Jesus? Absolutely. It will cost you your whole life. But don't kid yourself. There is also a cost to non-discipleship. In other words, for you to say, I'm not going to follow Jesus then, there is also a cost to non-discipleship. Remember, again, those three spheres that are conspiring against you. Your family of origin, the baggage we carry, the wounds we have to deal with, the hurt that we oftentimes carry around, the influences of the culture around us, the unseen realm. To do nothing to those, to do nothing in resistance towards those, will incur a cost, a great cost. And what Jesus invites us to do by way of discipleship is to recognize the cost is worth it. He goes on to say, next slide, another great quote. He says in what's the book called Renovation of the Heart. He says, they have become Christian. He's referring to people that have just uh, nominally trusted or claimed to follow Jesus in name, but their lives are very incongruous with their profession. He says, they have become Christian without being Christ-like. The way to get as many people into heaven as you can is to get heaven into as many people as you can. That is, to follow a path of genuine spiritual transformation or full-throttle discipleship to Jesus. I love that image. Um, We oftentimes in modern evangelicalism, we have this mentality like the big main goal is to just get as many people out of this world into heaven. And there's not anything untrue about that. But I love this image of like actually what the gospel is all about is getting heaven into us. That reshapes us. This is a space where God begins to reform and transform and reshape us, becoming followers of Jesus, preparing us for wherever that world is to come one day in the future. All right? So lastly, what I want to look at and wrap it up with this is that discipleship ultimately is done in the body. Discipleship is done in the body. And this might come, sound overly simplistic, but as I was reading this, this, become, this has become something for me that has become even more and more profound. So Paul writes, and he says, look, um, every follower of Jesus, they, Paul says, I buffet my body. 
In fact, he says in that particular passage when he buffets his body or beats himself, um, the actual word that's used is a really, really interestingly strong Greek word. It literally means to punch yourself in the face until it's black and blue. It sounds, again, you're like, wait, what is that in my Bible? It's totally in your Bible. It's kind of weird. But it's there, and so we have to think about it. And again, there have been those that have taken that passage and they've kind of made it as, it's literal, like literally punch yourself in the face. Like, don't punch anybody else in the face. Don't do that. And don't say Jesus told you to do that, because he didn't. But and don't even really punch yourself in the face, because that, that is taking something that was intended for metaphor and making it literal. But the big idea behind it is that Paul is saying, I'm very serious, but not wanting to let my body be the thing that controls me. I want the Spirit to control me, the Holy Spirit. Because I know the Holy Spirit gives life. And that immediately should hearken your head and your mind, your headspace back to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was brooding over the face of the deep. And he was making an uninhabitable planet habitable for life and humanity and beauty and goodness. And the Holy Spirit continued to do the same thing. That's the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He makes our lives habitable for all the good things that God wants to do in our lives. But again, where does it happen? This, this is the, the profoundly simple and yet profoundly amazing reality. It happens in your body. Your, your body, your soul, your thoughts, your emotions, your physicality, which means your taste, your feeling, all of these pleasure central arenas in our lives all of these things God designed and he says they're good. Your body is the place where discipleship to Jesus happens or your body is the place where resistance to God happens because we give in to our bodily appetites which then take us far from Jesus, which bring us into this whirlwind of alternate narratives and God ideas and concepts and guilt and shame and pain and hurt and wounding ourselves and wounding other people. And Jesus comes and says, I want to step into your world and give you life. And discipleship happens in your body. That's why I want to suggest to you very clearly, what you do with your body totally matters. How you think to use your body totally matters. Because it is the very space, it is the place that occupies this earth. And here's the beautiful thing, is that I think there's been this false narrative within many Christian circles that the body's bad, and one of these days, Jesus is going to get rid of all this evil and bad in the world, and we're going to go to heaven, someplace ethereal out there. And I would suggest to you, that ideology is actually not biblical. It's more related to Plato's idea that physicality is bad, and one of these days, God or the gods is going to save us from this physical reality, and then we're going to go to some ethereal state. The story of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end is that actually physicality is good, though it's become corrupted. And God's aim is to take corrupted physicality and breathe new life into it, to redeem it, to make all things new. And that's why in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, you actually see Jesus saying there's a new heaven and a new earth. That's why after the resurrection, Jesus, the very first thing he does when he rises from the dead and he hangs out with his friends, he's like, dude, I'm hungry. He might have said dude, but he's like, I'm hungry. Because a human physical body eats. It needs nourishment. It's one of the reasons why Paul would later go on to say that, uh, that, that as Christ was raised, so we too one day will be raised. In other words, Jesus becomes the template 
what Paul would later describe as the first fruits of all creation, that he is the very template that one day all history and all who are in Christ are going to follow suit. So here's a couple of closing passages, and I'll wrap it up with this thought. Listen to what he says in these passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Uh, he kind of gives these two pictures. That now, on the one hand, you as individuals are that temple where God's spirit resides. But on the other hand, as a community of individuals, you're not just individual. You don't just simply experience God isolated and separate. You're part of a community, a family, that in that family, God's spirit resides. Again, temple language is language that's kind of foreign to us because we don't really typically on the, in the West think about temples all too often. But the point of the matter is in ancient tradition and culture and ancient civilizations, temples were the space, physicality, physical space where God would meet with humanity. And so the image that Paul is saying is where is this new space where God meets with humanity? The body. Your body. Things like this. As we gather, I don't know how you thought about and what you thought that you were coming into this morning, but do you know this is sacred space? It's not sacred because any of us are sacred. We're all a bunch of messed up, broken people that bring in our false God narratives and our wounds and our daddy wounds and our hurts and our pains and our uh, backstories and all these other things. But because the Holy Spirit resides, it's sacred. And God is bringing healing and redemption and wholeness and making all things new. And then Paul goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So why would he say this? Because eating and drinking, obviously, are actual physical things that we do. Eating, drinking. Paul's concerned about the body. Why? Because the body is where discipleship to Jesus either happens, engages, or disengages, and we pull away. Your body matters. Lastly, Romans 12, one passage that may be familiar to a lot of you guys. Just listen to what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul's invitation to us is in view or in light of the mercy, the love, the grace, the kindness that God has for us. This is what we talked a little bit about last week, about the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicative, meaning that this is true of you, independent of what you've done what you have, and how you've acted, in spite of who you are, in spite of how you've acted, God has done this for you. It indicates something that's true about you. You are an object of God's love. And in view of that, take your bodies which is the space where discipleship happens, or you pull away. Take your bodies and offer them to God, saying, God, here's my body. And begin to ask God, God, how do you want to use my life to shape my life through these practices that Jesus did, that his disciples did, that 2,000 years of history did, and begin to engage and begin to let Jesus reshape your heart. One final thing I'll say, and I'm done, is this amazing thing. The story of the gospel itself is about a God who embodies himself in this world. It's the story of a God 
that loves his creation, even though his creation has gone awry and drifted and gone off into brokenness and sinfulness and destruction and sinful proclivities, it's a God that actually is not put off by that. It's a God that doesn't just simply eradicate it and wipe it out and start somewhere new. It's a God that actually steps into it. That's what the whole concept of Christmas and then ultimately the crucifixion is all about. Because he loves you. I'm done. We're going to wrap it up. We're going to finish. We're going to respond by way of singing, worship, and prayer. I'm going to have my good friend Cameron come on up. He's going to close this off in some prayer and then leading us into a time of response. And then the worship team will come on up as well and we'll move into it. Thanks, Brian. Um, Why don't you guys stand with me as we uh, enter into more worship, continuing uh, that posture of our hearts. Um, as, we, as we're listening to this message and uh, being encouraged to practice these um, disciplines, you know that the words from that song that we sang in the beginning, be lifted up, be lifted higher, was really resonating with me this morning. Um, and I'm, I'm just so thankful that God gave us an example of how to live um, through Jesus. And, and he lived a life that was sinless, but he also um, went to the cross so that we could experience forgiveness and redemption and be set free. Um, and as we look at these disciplines and we want, to, we want to do our best as good Christians, we want to like really follow God and, and do his work or you know, do the work of a good person, uh, we, we struggle and we fail and we, we come up short oftentimes, daily. And, and I think uh, the, the words that God is... Uh, given to me today is that, you know, we just need to look to Jesus and not look to ourselves. We need to look to what he's accomplished, not what we're trying to accomplish. And in that, we're going to find the ability to do all things through him who gives us strength, right? Um, and and I, I feel called to call us into uh, communion this morning. You know, Jesus gave his body and his and and his life for us, he broke, it was broken and his blood was poured out so that we could um, have redemption, forgiveness of sins, but also so we could, we could eat his, his life and actually take him into us, you know? And, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is, is the power that works in us to accomplish the life um, of a disciple of Christ, you know? So, it's, you know, communion's up here every week. It's, it's something that Jesus encourages us to do when we gather, and uh, I'm just going to read what, what he said about his body and blood, and then, and then as we finish this service up, we're going to have a song, and, and I'm going to invite you guys up to, to engage in communion um, with Jesus. But Jesus said in John 6:53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. If you want to know how to live for Jesus, if you want to know how to abide in him, it's feed on him. And out of that place, we'll, we'll be able to accomplish those things. It'll be easier. You know, the burden is light when we get yoked up with Jesus. 
So we're going to finish, and, and I encourage you guys to take a moment to really recognize that, really set your eyes on Jesus. And you're welcome to come up during this song and grab some communion. You can, you can set up front, or you can huddle up with your, whoever you came with, and just engage and thank Jesus for what he's done for, for you on the cross. Acknowledge it and take him into your body and know that the Holy Spirit will empower us. And uh, if, if you want some prayer, this is a great place to do it. If you want to come over here onto this side, um, people will be ready to pray for you, all right? So let's enjoy. God, we just thank you so much for, for the life that you've given for us, for, for dying on the cross and allowing us to, to have your life, to inhabit your spirit, to abide in you as you abide in us, God. Help this picture of communion to really like show us that as, a, as an amazing metaphor. Um, thank you, Jesus, for your life.